Nicole, it is the last episode of late screening of 2023. Hard to imagine, hard to believe. I don't know where this year has gone, um, but it's Christmas time. It's it's the holidays, so we're going to end the year right with a look at. Uh, it, technically, it's a holiday movie, but it is not exactly filled with holiday cheer up until <laughs> until the very very end. We're talking, of course, about uh, the Richard Donner film starring Bill Murray, Scrooged from 1988, turns 35 this year. Um, and uh, yeah, from my understanding, you've never seen this movie before. I have not. And I ask for both your and the viewers forgiveness if I forget details, because I watched it last Tuesday in anticipation of a recording much sooner. And then I came down with COVID and was in a haze for roughly seven days. Um, so if I don't remember something correctly, chalk it up to the ghost of Christmas past interfering with my brain waves. <laughs> I don't worry about it because I watched this around the same time thinking we were going to talk earlier. I think maybe even a little earlier than you. And because of my schedule and, and movies and all that stuff, I feel like I haven't watched it in 10 years. So this is going to be fun. This will be uh, interesting. Maybe we'll describe and discuss a movie that doesn't even exist. Who knows where they'll take us. That's um, par for the course. Well, let me start out with, because a few years ago, we talked about another Bill Murray movie, Ghostbusters, which through watching it with you and seeing it through your eyes, I kind of realized that this lifelong favorite film of mine, I didn't care for as much anymore. Now, I have seen it subsequently to that, and it's back up in my estimation, but as far as this being sort of a follow-up Bill Murray movie to that, this is only four years after Ghostbusters. What did you make of Scrooge? Do you put it in that same kind of category as far as Bill Murray comedies? Uh, did you like it more or less? What, what's your overall feeling? I do place it in a very similar category. And I think the realization I came to was, and I am a, a born and raised like Chicagoland guy. I've lived in the city for more than 10 years. So I understand what I'm about to say, but I don't think that Bill Murray can carry a movie. Um, I just don't. Um, I think that there is a mix of things going on here for me. Number one is like, I just don't think he's all that funny or that good of an actor. And number two is this is a very late 80s comedy to me. Um, yes. And that style of comedy just like i watch it and i think okay if i was 20 years old in 1988 and watching this i would probably think it was really funny but my standards for jokes and writing are different than what this movie offers i am not trying to say that they're higher because 80s comedy is a little bit more it has a little bit of like a deadpan satirical nature to it um, whereas like, I want the punchy dialogue, like every second contains three jokes and there's a, there lot, were, of, there's a lot of punching in this movie. Um, that's true. <laughs> there were a few witty lines in this movie and there were moments that I thought, oh, this is like, this is funny as a concept. And I enjoy watching that element of it. Like the first ghost being the cab driver. Well, I guess it's technically the second ghost, but the cab driver ghost, um, his, all of his scenes I thought were funny because it was just crazy that he pops into this cab, you know, randomly and he's taking him through time. And uh, the guy's just sort of wacko. But I um, I just also found the plot 
to be severely lacking in that it kind of suffers from this onus that a lot of comedies carry where it's like they expect you to jump to the conclusion when the film is doing so and you kind of miss some like storytelling growth i just didn't feel like any of whatever his character's name was uh frank cross frank cross i i don't think that any of his growth felt like it was earned through the movie i felt like at the end they were telling us he's now this guy that we have no evidence for um and that to me is a failure because a christmas carol that's kind of the whole point but i didn't get that here you know it's it's interesting you say that because something just occurred to me because i'm like uh, that i attributed to a christmas carol and maybe we should rewind the tape because this is essentially a modern slash 1988 retelling of a christmas carol with frank cross standing in for you know ebenezer scrooge um the key difference i think at the end of a christmas carol famously is when scrooge is visited by the ghost of christmas future he asks if I don't even, maybe, well, again, here's that fog, because I don't think this happened. There's no, like, dialogue between uh, Cross and that ghost at the end of this movie. I think it's the one ghost that doesn't really speak. It's just this giant, you know. And that was, like, a legitimately scary moment. I just, like, the framing of that shot and and just the being there, I was like, wow. Like, that, I did not expect this. But it, it wasn't the type of scary that makes you jump, but it was the type of, like, visceral fear of death they did a really good job of capturing that well and that's that's sort of my point um and, and i do like that one visage we get of it is a tell it's like an old crt monitor and you see a distorted version of bill murray's face that kind of melds into like the skull and this like horrific uh, image it's very effective but no the, the point i'm getting at is the original scrooge he asks uh the ghost he's like this is only one possible future right this isn't set in stone and the message is that, yes, this is what awaits you if you don't get your act together. So he still kind of has a choice. Um, at the end of Scrooge, I don't think that choice is really presented to him. It's presented to him as if that is his certain reality if he doesn't you know, change his ways. Like he's going to you know, end up burning to death in a coffin. So it's like, well, in terms of his own self-interest, what else is he going to do? <laughs> You know, it's like, I'm just going right. to go ahead being a jerk. Maybe I have a chance. I, I maybe it's maybe a very razor thin distinction. I don't even know if it makes sense, but it's just something that occurred to me while you were talking. Like, yeah, there's not that, that illusion of choice at the end. Well, that's a great point. And something I wanted to raise similarly is I, the message I got watching this was, oh, he's suddenly reminded he's going to die. And now he wants to be better. And I don't think that they did a good job of contextualizing it because there was a part of the scene where he has some of his like former coworkers like pushing the coffin along or whatever. I can't remember exactly what goes down, but it does feel well, sort of it, sort of bleak. Right. I mean, it's 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 only his brother and his brother's wife who show up for his funeral, but it's basically in just a giant crematorium and he's kind of wheeled into the fire you know, on a conveyor belt. Um, there's no one actually pushing, but I, I can see where that where you might get that. That's, yeah, that's um, what I meant is is yeah. like there are a few people there. And and I think the whole vibe is, yeah, it's very stark and bleak and and it's not a way anybody wants to go. Um, and that's and that's the thing is like 
knowing the Frank Cross that we see earlier in the film, I, I feel like it's only the self-interest of not wanting to burn up painfully at the end that really mattered to him um, or, or could be seen to matter to him. Because even the fact that only two people showed up to his funeral, when he meets the first uh, ghost, the guy who is his old boss and titan of industry, uh, he's got like mice crawling out of the, the holes in his head, spitting out golf balls instead of Bob, Mar not Bob Marley, uh, well, Mike, Jacob Marley, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bob Marley, a Christmas Carol. I'd watch that. Um, but no, instead of Jacob Marley carrying Different around a bunch of trees would be, would be featured in that one. <laughs> there you go. But, uh, but no, instead of carrying around chains, he's carrying around a golf cart because he died on the, you know, on the range. And that's sort of a symbol of what he really devoted his life to as a pursuit of, of money and, and sport. Um, but even when he's kind of arguing with them, the guy's like, yeah, I, I worship money. I didn't care about people. And now look at me. And Bill Murray's like, well, who cares? I mean, you, you had a great life. Everybody admired you. You had women and money, all that stuff. So in Frank Cross's mind, it seems like he, it feels like he's the kind of guy who would say, who cares who shows up, who shows up to my funeral? I'm going to be dead anyway. <laughs> could right. be a hundred people, could be two people. I'm not going to know. Um, so yeah, it is just that, it's like, like that snapping out of being in the fire and then kind of like praying that he, you know, he wants to wake up or whatever. And then he, he actually gets what he wants. I can see that having, you know, kind of a profound instantaneous effect on him. I hope that at the end of the movie, he's still or past the film. He's carrying on and being all gregarious and stuff. But yeah, you're right. There is something about it. I, I really this movie holds a special place in my heart because I saw it when I was very young. I still think it's funny. I think it's an imaginative take on Scrooge, you know, or uh, the, the Scrooge mythos. But yeah, there was always something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about it. And I think that we're kind of talking through it here. Yeah, I think tissue. I just think there's some missing. Yeah, missing pieces here. Um, and I, I think that the bones of the story are good. I actually really love this concept, right? Because even though it's almost 35 years old, like very relevant today very relevant like i bet you there are a million frank crosses at whatever network fortune 500 companies you know i'm sure they're all over the place um and i think that sort of idea can still very much resonate with a a current audience of like this you know multimillionaire who's viewing people as objects for profit and i don't think that that message is overt i just think it's you know subtly in there just by the nature of frank cross's character um but where, where I lose it a little bit is they spend so much time in the beginning of the movie building up who he is. And to me, when a character is this over the top kind of bad and out for himself, you don't need to do as much heavy lifting to tell us that. Like it can, you can kind of figure that out in like a few short scenes and because we spend so much time learning that he's a shitty person, I kind of got upset because I thought there was this really fascinating through line with his ex-girlfriend slash love interest, whose name I cannot remember, but who's very well acted. Um, and they kind of save this story for like the ghost of Christmas past, which I, which I completely get, like that's part of it. But it makes me wish that they had started the whole Christmas Carol story sooner because I feel like it's semi out of order and we're not really getting the full 
spectrum of who he is. And I think that the Ghost of Christmas Past section does a fantastic job of characterizing Frank Cross as he kind of descends into this money, success-hungry mogul um, and loses his humanity. And I think that if you place that a little earlier in the film, it's easier than to reel us in and think that, oh, he can get it back. But to me, it feels like, oh, we're now supposed to believe he was once this good guy when all we've seen is him sending a bath towel to his brother. Well, I mean, there's there's a little bit more to it than I, I there may be an imbalance. I'm not sure. My biggest distraction <clears throat> is the fact that it's a I guess it's a problem that we see in modern movies, but also in some earlier ones. Um, I feel like it wasn't it's it's worse now than it used to be. But the idea that a film could cast an actor playing a younger version, a different actor to play a younger version of the present day actor. Because when I see Bill Murray as, you know, 40 year old Frank Cross as an executive, I buy that. When we flash back to like the late 60s or whatever, and he's supposed to be 17 years old, because I, I think I did the math <laughs> looking at the counter on the taxi cab. We go from like 55 to 63, whatever that age is. I'm like, no, that doesn't. He's got the long, shaggy hair, which just looks like a ridiculous wig, which what it was, it was. And I don't even get the sense that like it's like a Dewey Cox story thing where, oh, isn't it going to be a funny sight gag that we've got this old guy playing a teenager? It just felt like we didn't want to. We spent so much money on Bill Murray. We can't afford to hire a 17 year old <laughs> actor to play him in these scenes. So that that part didn't really work for me. I did like the I think there could have been a couple more scenes uh, of him turning to the dark side, because I think the one that's truly emblematic is where he's playing this mascot puppy dog on like yep. a like a local. It almost feels like a cable access it TV does. show for kids instead of something you'd see on an NBC type of network that he's working for. Um, but when Claire, that's his girlfriend's name, played by the wonderful uh, Karen Allen from the Indiana Jones films and other movies, um, she says, oh, well, we've got our friends invite us over for a holiday dinner. And he's like, I just got invited out to dinner. We got invited out to dinner with the big boss. We have to go. And she's like, no, I'm going to be with my friends. They're like, well, fine, you go do that then. That's a great turning point. But I don't know that it encompasses. I don't see Frank Cross emerging fully formed from that. I think there are other episodes that might have characterized his descent. I feel like we are kind of missing a lot of that. Um, so yeah, not, not advocating this movie to be longer, but maybe as you point out, trim off some of the stuff in the beginning. Like I like Bobcat Goldthwaite's character as the, the nerdy guy in the boardroom who makes the suggestion that oh, perhaps he reminds they me of Rick Moranis in this. Oh, very much so. But he makes the suggestion that perhaps the night the reindeer died, the, uh, the Lee Majors starring, uh, it's like Die Hard in Santa's Village. Maybe that's going to scare people and not fill them with holiday, holiday cheer. He's immediately fired, becomes a raging alcoholic, gets a shotgun, comes back to work to try and take care of his boss. I like that idea in theory, but and I don't know how much more you can trim out of it, but it still seems like that goes a long, long way. Fun trivia fact. Before we started recording, we were talking about the Robin Williams movie, World's Greatest Dad, directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought he was very entertaining in this movie, so no surprise that he made another excellent movie. Um, yeah, I, I think that we've kind of hit the nail on the head here is there, there feels like missing pieces. And to me, it's like, 
it, it's easier to forgive a comedy for missing these narrative threads. But in this case in particular, I feel like there are just one too many leaps that I've, I'm asked to make as a viewer that aren't, that I'm not like ushered to by the creator. And that's a fine balance too, right? Because you don't want to be fed everything by a spoon. Um, it's, it's okay to let the viewer make some connections on their own. I just think like we're saying that the timing of it is a little bit off and we are made to hate Frank so fervently so early that seeing a little bit of his past doesn't do much to assuage those assuage those concerns. Um, however, Claire is a saint and I, I love every <laughs> scene that she's in. Um, she, she just takes it over. Um, and she like, I think that's part of it too, is she has this really good kind energy. Um, and it's a great foil to Frank's character and we don't see her too early either. So maybe if we had seen a little bit of her or more of her or a more in-depth scene with her earlier on, we could then understand a little bit of what's happening here. Um, because contextualizing a character by their relationship to somebody else can go a really long way, right? You know, mm -hmm. we can understand that, oh, he, this woman once loved him and we like her. So, you know, what sort of went wrong? He must have been good in some way. Um, but again, it, it's not there. It, it's there. It's just late and, and it feels <laughs> very awkward. And then, I mean, we're getting sort of to the climax here, but like the movie culminates in kind of this fever dream monologue performance by Frank Cross during the what is what is supposed to be the live broadcast of his horrific Scrooge adaptation starring Buddy Hackett as Ebenezer <laughs> Scrooge yeah. yeah and there was a part of me that was like I like the sort of irony here where like his whole plan was to get ratings with shock value and whatever and he ended up you know, doing this live and people were probably like, oh, tune in, tune in, whatever. Um, but to me, it felt kind of hollow and empty because this is back to the Christmas Carol story, but also in Scrooge, you know, he gets all these images of his secretary's family and his family missing him and, and hoping that he's doing well. And he mentions them on the broadcast, but for me, a harder hitting ending or climax would have been I don't care about this broadcast. I want to go be with my family like, or, or he invites everybody out to watch it live or, you know, some, something a little more connected to the threads that they're pulling throughout the whole uh, ghost sections. You know, I, I understand that, but I don't know how without, how that would have worked practically. Um, I mean, it it's, it's a big holiday. Well, right. Well, I, I'm I, I'm still for all my you know kind of nitpicks of of Scrooge. I have always for like the last almost four decades, absolutely loved Bill Murray's this climactic scene because it always it always kinds of kind of moves me to tears um, because when he says I get it now, it is that's the part where I wish that connective tissue we we're discussing had been a bit stronger because I think even though the moment isn't earned, I think the moment is pretty spectacular. I get the, because what he says, you know, I get it now I'm ready. I feel like he's almost ready. It's almost like the, he's almost ready to die. 
like he's finally figured out what life is all about. And he's like, if that whole thing of like, if this is my last moment on earth, at least I died doing this or knowing this or whatever. But you get the feeling that hopefully he's going to carry that energy forward. And I think that by waking up from this ghost dreamer experience, whatever, and going out and seeing his brother, that would just been weird because he, he almost realizes that that's part of the cost of him living this way is these people have their own other lives. His brother and his fiance have their friends at the apartment. They're cuddled up watching TV, having a party. You know, the, the secretary, she's she's there with her youngest kid to have that tiny Tim moment. But also her extended family is staying you know in the apartment with the with the grandmother. So they all have the love in their lives. So for him to come and say, hey, come, I've learned my lesson. It's almost an imposition or I feel like it could have been, whereas he's in his element. He's got this stage. and I think he kind of makes a point like, what the hell are you doing? watching tv on christmas eve you know be with your loved ones you know this is this whole thing is ridiculous um see i, I think that part works um and i i do want to challenge your contention that bill murray is not a fine actor i mean i there are i think the movies that he is credited with uh being like really good dramatically i don't care for like lost in translation a movie i saw once like 20 years ago i hated and i've never gone back to although people say i should but there is sort of that in later years he's gone further and further into the deadpan to the point where it's almost like it's beyond deadpan and let's put a mirror under his nose just to make sure um <laughs> but in this case there is a moment when claire shows up to set i think it's the first time we see her in the movie um and Frank Cross is talking to a stagehand about how to get antlers onto a mouse. And he's he, Cross says, have you tried staples? And Claire says, don't you dare try you know, stapling antlers to this poor little creature. And you see, he might have even said something like a line about, you know, this is her, you know, my little activist or something like that. But in that moment, you see him give like this wistful kind of smile like, oh, yeah, I was really in love with this woman because of her passion and spirit. And I have not felt either of those things in decades. And it's just that little flash across his face, I think really sells the moment. Now, I do think the movie is kind of underdone by a lot of that punching and over the top kind of like slapstick physical comedy. Um, I love Carol Kane as an actress, but like her showing up as the ghost of Christmas present. I don't know what the hell was going on there. Like it, was, it felt like a, it felt like an episode <laughs> of a Tina Fey sitcom. Um, well, you know, she, Carol Kane was basically that character in the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, if you've seen it. Um, mm -hmm. and in fact, the Frank Cross, uh, Claire dynamic is kind of emulated, maybe even it's an homage in 30 rock with Alec Baldwin's character and Julianne Moore, who plays his former, you know, love interest. Um, mm. so very fascinating stuff. Um, but I do want to briefly touch back on the the monologue at the end because you talked me off the off the ledge a little bit, and I think <laughs> I think with some of your you know your analysis it makes more sense to me and and that I think that moment now I can read is pretty positive. And one thing I didn't mention that I loved about that moment is a lot of Christmas spirit movies feel sort of hackneyed in their presentation of Christmas spirit and. Um, oddly enough, I think one that does it really well is the animated Grinch where they're all singing Havu Dores <laughs> at the end. But I think that this has a really interesting take on that because it's sort of like manic overflowing joy 
is how I would describe yeah. what he's feeling. And it's like a euphoria. Um, and it feels very real and it is very well acted. So I, I want to give Bill Murray credit where it's due. I didn't really love him in the rest of the movie, but you're completely right in that there are times when he delivers a joke or a scene that make you go, huh, like that's not what I expect from, you know, a quote unquote comedy actor who's singing, take me out to the ball game at the seventh inning stretch of the Cubs world series game <laughs> seven or whatever. Um, but he, he does a really good job of capturing that energy and it's something completely different. It sidesteps the normal, you know, sort of hokey Christmas tropes and there's nothing wrong with those. But when you watch a Christmas movie and have your expectations playfully subverted, there's something really special about that. Um, it's, it's sort of like a little twinkle in your eye, you know, because it's like, oh, this isn't exactly what I expected, but it made me feel good in a different way. And I really appreciate that about him uh, in this movie in particular. And I think it's a great representation of like when you're a kid and you're sort of overcome with this joy of seeing all the gifts under the, and you're with your family and friends and, you know, it's like, it kind of overcomes you and, and subsumes you. And you get this from an adult who was before just this really mean guy. Uh, and it's sort of a magical moment. It really is. It is. And I think one of the ways, I, one of the things I think the script does really well is it allows Frank Cross to have his revelation on TV using uh, the language that he used before, but in a completely different context, because he talks about, you know, go out and do something good. And then if you do something good, you want to do more and more and more, and you'll get that feeling. And he says, and you'll become greedy for it. So he, in that moment, he is able to substitute the idea of just constantly pursuing money and power and fame with doing good. And that's, that's a beautiful message. And I mean, honestly, I've, I'm an old softie. I'm tearing up right now thinking about that end song of Al Green and Annie Lennox doing uh, Put a Little Love in Your Heart, um, I, which I think is one of the reasons I think that ending works perfectly well because it goes right into it. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a, a shame that I think Roger Ebert kind of decried the movie as being like kind of nasty and very mean spirited and, and one of the darkest things he'd seen that year. And it is, and I think, that's sort of a casualty or at least a cost of setting a Christmas Carol in night peak 1980s, Gordon Gecko greed is good America. Right. It's like, yeah. you can't, you can't have it on any other way. The only way it could get worse is if you had Patrick Bateman instead of Frank cross, you know, American <laughs> psycho learns the Christmas spirit. Yeah. Murders and uh, executions on Christmas. <laughs> uh, true sleigh bells. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah. So let's talk a bit about, um, about these ghosts. I mean, this, that's the weird thing is people don't really think about Scrooge. I don't think as a special effects heavy movie, but it really is. It is kind of in line with Ghostbusters in that way. I think the cab scene that we kind of mentioned, uh, earlier, um, even Carol Kane, like floating around these weird, uh, you know, glittery ghost wings. There's a real sense of design and imagination to the way they choose to, to show this, uh, this kind of magical realm he enters. What did that resonate with you? I didn't, I don't really remember the special effects all that much. Um, I was kind of living in a world where everything looked like a special effect via the COVID. Um, but the, the ghosts were impactful in different ways for me. Um, as I mentioned, the, the first ghost, I, eh, 
I was just like, okay, kind of shock value, like decrepit old man. And that served sort of the same purpose as like the ending of he's going to die. Like this is what he might well, become. I, I will say that it's almost a, um, a moment of shock value to ease you into what the rest, how the rest of the ghosts are going to appear. Cause I think he is possibly scarier than the ghost of Christmas future because He's mostly wearing sunglasses during the ordeal, even though like they're dusted over and he's full of cobwebs. At the end, he picks Bill Murray up by the throat and shoves him outside the skyscraper and his glasses come off. And you see just like the whole like his empty dead sockets as he's laughing maniacally. I considered, you know, my wife and I were talking about like, well, maybe our youngest could watch this because it's, you know, got all these funny ghosts and stuff. And when we saw that movie with that scene, we're like, oh, that's right. No, he's not <laughs> watching this until he's probably 10 or 11. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and yeah, that, that does a good job at kind of setting up like, oh, this has a different tone than just like we're rehashing a Christmas Carol. Um, and then, yeah, Carol Kane, I thought was like, <sighs> It was it was just tonally mismatched. I felt like with the rest of the movie, and I, if I remember, she was kind of horny. Was that was that the joke? No, or am I just no. am I just horny? <laughs> you might be horny for Carol Kane, but you know that presents its own series of problems and and many spinoff shows. I'm sure. <laughs> Colin Carroll, the new Netflix series, streaming for one season and canceled immediately. Um, it sounds like you just said a colon carol, which is a completely different kind of series. That's my, that's my morning every day. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, in fact, you mentioned her however many minutes ago. Feels like years ago now. Um, and I barely remembered her part in the movie. I found that ghost pretty forgettable, as you can tell by me not knowing any of the qualities First ghost I remembered really well. And then, like I said, that final ghost was incredibly impressive. And that to me was like a gasp moment because I thought it was going to be something much hokier with kind of a shtick. And it wasn't. It was just like, and, and, it, and it kind of speaks to the imposing nature of death, right? It's just there. And that's that's what it is. You can't really escape that part of it. And I thought that was a really cool creative choice. But with regards to the ghosts, I think they were hit or miss. But I do like that the, the movie makers attend, attempted to bring them into the modern era and have something interesting about them. Like a ghost cab driver is so late 1980s. Um, it, it's just such a fun mechanic. And it sort of lends the movie a bit of magic in juxtaposition to its realism. Like because it's sort of modern, so you can't be as outright magical as you would in like an older Scrooge tale, for example. Um, but having a cab that goes back in time, like, oh, okay, like you can suspend your disbelief for that. And right, and the, the fair ticker is going back and is rewinding the years. Yeah, exactly. And I really like those elements because I expect a little bit of magic in a, in a holiday Scrooge movie. Um, but it's hard to match that tone with the more realistic natures of it. And uh, they do that well. And I think that's what that's what purpose the ghost served for me. Yeah, I mean, there's <clears throat> there's one guy who becomes a ghost at the very end, but um, it's it's also the scene I'm about to describe is, you know, one of the the tonal shifts. There, there are a lot of tonal shifts in Scrooge and towards the end, Bill Murray encounters. I think it's when he's in between ghosts. He winds up in a sewer and he encounters this uh, homeless man that he had kind of like brushed off at the shelter that Claire works at. And he's 
sitting there frozen completely to death. His face is totally blue. He's got like icicles formed in his eyes. He's got this really creepy smile on his face and he's holding a, like a pocket watch. Um, and that, that still, I remember that freaking out as a kid and still as an adult, I'm like, this is, this is eerie. And it's eerier that I guess it's because it's Frank Cross, but just hearing, I, I didn't see Frank Cross in that moment. I saw Bill Murray like ad-libbing and seeing what stuck, what he's talking about. Like you, you would have, you know, if you just stayed with Claire, you would have, your cheeks would have been rosier. You would have had better color or something like that. I'm like, that's a workout line. That's not, <laughs> that's not something that belongs <laughs> in the rest of this script. Um, but yeah, it's nice that he shows up as sort of, there's like this force ghost moment at the end where you see all the spirits smiling, you know, w wistfully at Frank Cross and, and his success. Um, it's strange that Richard Donner, I don't know if you're familiar with the rest of his work or if you've looked it up, but this is the guy who brought us Superman in the late 70s, 10 okay. years before this. Lethal Weapon the year before this <laughs> with uh, uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover and then Scrooge. And I think... Uh, um, yeah, he didn't do Ghostbusters. That was Ivan Reitman. But yeah, like these weird kind of holiday, like anti-holiday movies. Although Scrooge, I think, becomes a holiday film. But there's a weird trend in the last several decades with Christmas movie, ho holiday movies that dig so down deep into the muck, but then pop back up with the, the holiday spirit messages, almost like trying to say, you know, how far can we go in destroying Christmas <laughs> and still get right. away with calling ourselves a Christmas heartwarming message movie. Yeah, and the, the direction you go with that muck is, I think, very important because the reality is for some, the holidays suck. You know, people yeah. who, who come from broken families or don't have anybody to spend them with or who are, you know, struggling for money or food. And I think that showcasing that side of things, that there are different ways people get by is a really unique way of getting into that muck. Um, and I think this movie toes that line pretty well, actually, because, you know, I loved seeing the scene with the secretary where they talk about how the son hasn't talked since his dad passed. And like, you know, that sort of stuff makes for a really tough holiday for some people. Um, and those sorts of scenes to me work really well. And the movie wouldn't have worked without them because otherwise the ghosts kind of just exist for that shock factor, magical part of the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think I really like the, the diversion, how, you know, Grace who's played brilliantly, I think by Alfred Woodard, who's the uh, secretary. She is the, the Bob Cratchit stand in and the, her little, her son who hasn't spoken since I think he saw her, his father die or was killed. Um, you know, we get to see extended scenes of them at home together and they've got a, a large family, mostly of like teenagers. And despite living in really undesirable conditions, they've found a, made to, a way to you know make it work. And you see her really trying to hold it together. And it's not always easy, but it is that heartwarming kind of spirit of family. Again, I don't know what's going on with me, Cole. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm getting a little welled up here. Um, but yeah, it, it really does show these great contrasts between what Frank Cross doesn't have and what he has no idea that he's missing and, and the kind of empty the life that he that he's got at the end. So when he scoops Claire up into his arms and gives her that big kiss at the end, I'm like, yeah, he finally he gets he gets all of it now. And hopefully he'll continue to, to get it in many ways of the right. Sense the other of the lesson word. it teaches him is how his actions impact others, which 
feels like it should just be a baseline thing we all understand but like it's hard as a person to do that sometimes um you know it's easy to look out for numero uno and in many ways you should but it's also possible to understand that like oh the things i do may cascade down to others especially if if you're in a position of power or privilege like he is um and i think those scenes that contextualize that for him go a long way in the character growth that is otherwise sort of missing um and I think that's part of it is like, we see this and ostensibly as the viewer, we're supposed to know, oh, he's internalizing this lesson, but we don't see that. And I think that's where some of the trouble comes in. Well, Bill Murray was certainly generous um, in terms of uh, making sure that his family got work because uh, three of his brothers appear in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> One of his brothers plays his dad during the flashback scene. Uh, he's the, you know, the butcher, the grumpy old dad. Um, and then his younger brother plays his actual younger brother, the guy who gets the uh, the micro or the the towel instead of the VCR or gets the VCR instead of the towel. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think his other other brother was one of the party goers at that same like trivia gathering. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of I don't know if you picked up on that, but there are like a lot of people no. who kind of looked like versions of Bill Murray walking around. That's because they're all part of the same family. Gotta love it. Merry yeah. Christmas, everyone. Um, and I did, I did like that that little bit of magic at the end where he announces that the SS Minnow was the was the the name yeah. of the boat on Gilligan's Island. Everyone at the apartment's like, "How did he know that?" Oh, <laughs> I love that nice part touch. too because it sort of lends like, "Oh, this was real at least to him," and and something is going on beyond you know what we can see here or understand. And also the, going back to that brother, uh, the moment when he says that he confesses that he's that it was uh grace the secretary who sent him the vcr because he was really excited to get it he thought oh well maybe my brother's <laughs> softening up or something he's never sent me anything like this before and then that moment where he's like yeah that was that wasn't me that was grace and you see the look on his brother's face in that moment he's like oh, shit <laughs> just kind of disappointed but then things kind of turned around a couple minutes later but it's that nice moment of honesty that um yeah I don't know. Maybe it's because the rest of the movie is so off kilter and weird that the end, even though it doesn't feel earned, but it's so solid. Maybe that's what really has pushed me through to loving this movie in a lot of ways. Um, and that's perhaps an unfair, whatever the opposite of a critique is, an unfair leg up in terms of evaluating <laughs> its qualities. I, I think that a person's perception of a movie is completely valid in determining its quality. Everything is subjective. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't have this podcast. Uh, which is the new tagline. Um, there we go. Taking the seat. Thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cole, any uh, closing thoughts on Scrooged? God bless us, everyone. That still gets me. I Damn it. They <laughs> telegraphed that thing so hard in this movie. But when See he opened his mouth and... Away. Right, but it's even down to the kid, like his delivery. It's it's kind of scratchy. Like, yeah, this kid hasn't spoken in like five years. I, I totally bought it. Um, and it, you know, when Alfred Woodard, like, I think she puts her hands up to her mouth and she's like, "Oh my God, it's a miracle." Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Um, so, Cole, thank you very much for talking to Scrooge. Thanks a lot for talking about all the the movies and the books that we've discussed this year i must confess um because of various uh, illnesses and time constraints and demands on my time uh we should have been talking about the lord of the rings return of the king right about this time <laughs> of the year but i think we might have to save that for january <laughs> completely fine lots by going me. on all right 
So uh, anything you want to talk about, plug, any last words on Scrooge? Yep, everybody go watch RRR. You sound like me from last year. You're, I you're my ghost I just, of Christmas past. Aaron and I were in Utah recently, and we had like three hours to spare in a hotel room. And I was like, hey, I've heard great things. You want to watch this movie? And we were both blown away. <laughs> just <laughs> just freaking floored. And I knew it was good. I had heard nothing but great things. And I was like, this is this is everything. It's still my favorite movie of like the last 10 years. <laughs> I agree. It's it's right up there. Aaron was like, this is in my top 10 guaranteed. Like, and I completely agree. Absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, loved it. So that's awesome. my plug. Go and watch RRR. <laughs> and if you loved RRR, and this is a plug that you can do too, Cole, you can watch my uh, very, very brief interview with director SS Rajmuli. Oh, I would love to do that. I'll go check it out. Yeah. And you should um, too. There you go. I've I'm already Uncle seen Sam it. Right I was now. there. Oh, <laughs> I want you to know. All right. Well, Cole, um, thank you again uh, for everything. It's been a really weird, tumultuous, and in a lot of ways, great year. And I appreciate you still continuing to, to join me on this journey. I love it. We're, we're in year, what, seven now, starting in 2024. So My we goodness. are going strong because I'm thinking Harry Potter 7 coming up. So Look at us. I'm excited. You have broadened my horizons and you have also helped me solidify which types of movies I don't like. So I thank you in equal measure. And also and go watch Nathan Fielder's The Curse on Paramount Plus with Showtime. Have you watched it yet? I Yeah, I'm watching it. It comes out every week. Um, mm. It's a, it's different, but it is uncomfortable and cringy as ever. I'm probably going to wait until it's all done so I can subscribe to Paramount Plus and do the like the watch and ditch thing. Yep. But um, yeah, so yeah, here's to an even better 2024. Although I'm going to have to get greedy with your time, Cole, because for reasons I won't disclose, I have a feeling you will be much less available. And when you are available, much less awake. Uh, but, I don't uh, know what reasons you can't disclose, but I am having a baby with my wife. And that's the announcement. Okay, I didn't, I didn't want <laughs> to do the thing, but... All right, cool. Well, <laughs> congratulations, Cole. I'm I'm super excited about it. Um, and uh, yeah, best to you and yours. And oh, any chance that uh, we can get the new kid on the the podcast? Oh, absolutely. Okay, Baby Genius. We'll watch it. We'll watch Baby Geniuses, and we'll get the the. Yeah, well, she'll probably be mostly asleep, which is fine. You know, just <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> what did you think of Baby Geniuses? <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you. Take care. Happy holidays. And we will talk again in 2024. See you then. Fairly well. Right.